Welcome to Innovation Insights, the podcast where we explore innovation in all aspects of life. I am your host, Dr. Yolanda. Today we're joined by Dr. Susan Strong, Professor Emerita of Apparel, Design, and Merchandising, Dominican University in Chicago. She is also the author of Knitting America, Glorious History, From Warm Socks to High Art, uh, which was published in 2007. Dr. Strawn writes and illustrates stories otherwise hidden in cloth and historic clothing, with special fondness for the overlooked everyday textiles, for example, pot holders, and the history of knitting. More than 50 of her articles, many on the history of knitting, have appeared in trick and jury publications. Susan has published nearly 40 interpretations of historical knitting patterns, and is an excellent knitter herself. <laughs> Susan's current project is a book entitled Whoop, which is a story collection that blends memoir, knitting history, and knitting. She lives near her son and his family on Cambridge Island in Washington. Welcome, Susan. It is just a joy to have you here. And I didn't say this in my introduction, but I've been fortunate to know you for probably about 20 years, and it started with a little knitting group that we had in Fort Collins, Colorado, called Knitwit, and it was so fun to begin our journey that way in an area that you just love. Thank you for that introduction, and thank you for inviting me to do this. You've been an important person in my life, going back to the, to the Knitwit. <laughs> the Midwits who turned my life around. Well, they pointed me in the direction for a whole new career that was very appropriate for me. Oh, that's wonderful. Your career journey has been diverse and it spanned many fields from veterinary medicine to biomedical illustration to academia. And so, can you share some key moments or experiences that led? you to pursue such a very group of careers and how did you navigate those channels? Well, I can make a stab at it here. I think because I pointed out to you, I grew up, not up red exactly, but in a, a really small town with very limited resources. I don't think I saw a museum until I was in my late teens. Didn't get out of Iowa or Nebraska until I was in college. I mean, it was just very limited. I think I was really poorly prepared. It was also a time when the only really acceptable careers for women were secretary, teacher, nurse, or a job at the county courthouse. I was about it, and the expectations were very low. And I was always a good student, and I loved learning, and I knew I didn't want to stay there. So my goal was to basically move on, and I did. You had to go to college, but I just, I was so poorly prepared to be an adult and to make adult decisions like college majors and so on. I don't remember why I wanted to be a veterinarian other than I liked animals and I had really poor social skills, so I did much better around animals. I had horses and I had a dog and I think that was it, just that I related more to animals and I liked science. And then I got into it and I found Man, I was really not a good fit. 
And I stuck it out for two years, but there were only three women in that class at that time. This was before second wave feminism. And it was just too awful. I won't go into the details, but it was terrible. And so I made a really sensible decision and just got married to the first person who asked me. Moved away, had a child, so so much for my decisive decision making. But I just knew I wanted to do something else. So when we moved to Colorado, I started looking into what else I could do. And at Colorado State University, I stumbled across, I studied psychology. I think I was trying to figure out why I was so confused. I, I don't know. And then I stumbled across the biomedical illustration graduate program. And I could always draw. I was always good at drawing. And I now I had these two years of really heavy-duty science. So I thought, that sounds good. So I went for that. And after graduation, I um, started my own business on the illustrated textbooks, uh, medical textbooks, uh, a lot of emergency medicine and so on. Any, anything anybody would pay me to draw, that's what I did. Got involved with a little bit with, I just started meeting people. It was a solitary life. So I was raising my son then and, and in Colorado. And so really enjoying Colorado a lot. But then I got to know other people in the field and I got to know someone who worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service. And we just struck up a, an acquaintance, a friendly acquaintance. And then she left to have a baby and asked me if I'd come and work for her while she was away. And then she decided she only wanted to come back half time. So I just, these things just fell into my lap. And then, let's see, where did I go after that? Oh, yeah. Then I was, was working there. And then Paul Opler and I did these butterfly coloring books. I was always getting ideas for things. Oh, you're an entomologist. <laughs> this is great. I did some drawings. We can do, why don't we do? So we did this series of these butterfly coloring books. And... At the Fish and Wildlife Service, I also did exhibit and PowerPoint. Not we didn't have PowerPoint yet. We had slides, yeah, you know, primitive stuff. And but I got a lot of experience with how scientists present themselves and how to develop exhibits and so on. And then a job opened up, and I was getting bored, which is a real problem for me. I just get bored if I don't have any things to do. I learned about, and you know the story, but I think I won't go into it here. How I learned about. The job at a, at a museum, in a city museum, and I applied for it, and I got it, and I got it. In part, I was one of three finalists, and in part, I had to just, they gave me a box of rocks and told me to design an exhibit for the rocks, and so I did it. I went down to the Coors Hall of whatever rocks, whatever it is, down at the museum, and I came up with it. The whole thing is I would have done for one of the scientists in Fish and Wildlife, and they thought, well, this is good. Let's hire her. So I ended up being there for five years, and I installed art exhibits every month in our gallery. And then I also refurbished and installed quite a few history exhibits. And really, I think developed a lot of history then. It was very interesting working with the artifacts and the collection. It was very interesting. When we had a collections curator, I mostly did exhibits. But I liked writing the labels, and I always had other projects. So right down the street from me was Interweave Press, a block away. Interweave Press, which in case any listeners aren't familiar with that, it's a, a publishing company. It was really the heyday of the publishing company that was the leader 
in publishing books and magazines about handmade textiles. Started with Wendell Flagan, started it off her dining room table, and built it into a, a major publishing company. And so it was weaving and spinning, and eventually had bead making. And the one that really got to me was was piecework, which was a magazine of history and needlework. And I thought there, I found my language. That one, I just loved that. So I convinced, so I was, I was the staff artist. I got hired as the staff artist because I was freelancing for them. And again, it was another pregnant woman. I hadn't thought about that. The woman who was their staff artist got pregnant and decided to leave. And it was just the same time that I called Linda and said, I'm looking for more work. And she told me later, this is too good to be true. Another illustrator steps in. So I did illustration and photo styling there. And then, but when they started piecework, and that was a lot of work doing those magazines, the illustration, the photo styling, and working with lots of different editors, most of whom were absolutely wonderful. They were so wonderful that they were open to me writing articles for them. And that's what I wanted to do. I'd always wanted to write. And, but I didn't know how to do research very well. I just didn't have a background. And when my marriage fell apart, I just thought, this is what I want to do. I want to get a PhD, study textiles and clothing, study historic and ethnographic textiles. So I left Enderreed Press and I went to graduate school for three years. And that's where you and the other Nitwits came in because you just took me under your wing. I just dropped into knitting. Again, I'm just, oh, look, a knitting group. It's on campus. I live near campus. I can do And we just started talking, and I thought it was so much more interesting. All the work you were doing with, I just, anyway, the work you were doing was so interesting with the enslaved narratives at the time. And now the name of the woman who was there in Crimea has gone. Mary Seacole. Mary Seacole. Remember sewing the petticoats for the exhibit, recreating. And then others were studying all these really interesting things. And I thought, oh man, this is what I want to do. And it wasn't, you know, it was something I could dive into. I was in my fifties by then. And it was, my son was off having his life and doing well. And I thought, this is, you know, my time. This is it. So I rented out my house. I moved to Ames, Iowa. Iowa State had the best program the most financial. I graduated three years. I graduated with no student debt, thanks to some very creative people. And so I studied there. And then I, but I was longer for the West. So I decided I would, I don't know what I wanted to do about that. So I decided to do my dissertation in the West. And I did it on the Navajo Nation. I studied the reintroduction of Navajo churro sheep and wool to Navajo lands. Navajo Weaver, which is really interesting. But I also studied um, knitting. I was always interested in knitting. And I tried to start a knitwits group in, in Iowa State, but they were such, they were so work-driven. I mean, they were afraid it would look like they weren't working hard enough or something. It was just, nobody would do it. So, But I still kept knitting. And any time I had to write a paper in history, I wrote it about uh, knitting history. And interestingly, after I got my degree, everybody told me, don't study historical cultural. All the jobs are in design and merchandising. And I thought, there's no point. 
And of course, I thought, I'm going to get out and I'm going to write things and get paid. And like, <laughs> that wasn't really going to happen. But the, just the perfect job opened up for me at the Dominican. I think I walked across the stage, bent down, got my hood from Barry Luttrell, and I went home and there was the announcement for this position. And it was just perfect for me. It was developing the liberal arts core for their apparel design and merchandising program, which was history of dress and culture. And then I negotiated textile science, which I really liked, and surface design of fabrics. Like I have a studio class. But then before I left, I was teaching at Colorado State for a year. And you invited me to your class you were teaching about the philosophy of knitting. Do you remember that? And I invited my friend Deb Robson, who'd been an editor at uh, Interweave, the editor of Spinoff. And to come and just hear what I've been doing, because I'd already done enough of this that I presented at the International Textile and Apparel Association meeting. I presented a, a scholarly paper on the history of knitting. I was very serious about this. And so Deb was there. And shortly after that, so I came and presented to your student. Shortly after that, Voyager Press called Deb and said, so we're looking for somebody to write a book on the history of knitting. How are you interested? And Deb said she really wasn't, but she knew somebody who would be. So once again, it just dropped in my hand. So I look like I'm being innovative, but really, I'm just there with my hands outstretched saying, okay, I'm ready. Just <laughs> Yeah. So I signed the contract to write that book, which took me two years, the same month that I signed the contract to go and teach at Dominican full-time, 3-3 three, three schedule, three classes each semester. And I hope to never work that hard again in my life. That was really rough. And I moved and I sold my house. So that was rough. But very, it was really hard. But again, it doesn't seem like that long ago, but Facebook and MySpace were duking it out for which was going to be the student's favorite social media program. I was like, what was that, 18 years ago, something like that? Yes. The level of transformation in technology in that time, the 10 years I was there, was just amazing. The university was generous with travel funds, and so I started traveling every chance I got. And uh, so I stayed there for 10 years, but I was always planning to move out here in the summer. I would come out to Seattle where my son had settled. And I would stay somewhere around here, and then I would go to the Seattle Central Library and write the Scanduzzi Writer's Room up on the ninth floor in the Seattle Library. And I wrote articles, so that's how I got a lot of articles written. That was what I focused on. And then because the university paid so well for travel, boy, I presented every chance I got, which was wonderful. Costume Society, Textile Society. International Textile Apparel Association, Communal Studies, I was interested in that. And that was wonderful because, again, I was meeting people, and people are still friends. And we became, many of them, we became collaborators as we talked. That's also how I got quite a few of them. And then with, when the book was published, then I was invited to give a lot of talks, so I had to learn how to do that. And that was good. <laughs> So then I just, once I could leave, I, once I was in a financial position to retire, 
I moved out here to Pacific Northwest during a couple of years just being retired, volunteering, different things, and then really missed the writing and have gone back to writing quite often for what is now Long Thread Media, Linda Ligon and other editors for some of the magazines. And I'm still a contributing editor to Piecework, write for them quite a bit, the Needlework and History. But now I'm just so much, I don't know, I have so many resources now. I know I just learned so much in that graduate education. And then having to teach students, I had to develop a lot more knowledge. And uh, now I know how to find information and how to write that. But I, then this, during the pandemic, I just have to stop me at some point, but during the pandemic, I'm out here and things are really shut down from my volunteer positions and so on and my social life. And I reconnected with a woman named Mary Swander. She's a distinguished professor from Iowa State University, now retired, and she had started a not-for-profit called Ag Arts, which is arts and agriculture. And just happened to connect with about a dozen other people online, and she was teaching a memoir writing course. And I thought, that sounds like a good thing to do when I'm at home. And it was just going to be a month. But everybody just loved it so much. Everybody knew Mary from somewhere. She had been my nonfiction writing professor and on my committee at Iowa State. And once again, I just came into my head, I wonder if Mary's teaching online. And there it was, memoir writing, which is what I wanted to do. I don't know. We, we all liked it so much that we just kept her going. We managed to keep her going for almost three years teaching us. And so I learned a lot more about writing, just like really improved my writing skills. I learned more about storytelling, broke the bonds of academic writing. And because everything I wrote when we first started, she just said, no, too academic, get rid of that. I'll do it. Full first paragraph, too academic, just throw that out. But then just every, for, at first it was every week, then it was every week, every month, and she set up workshops for us. And it really became a very important part of my life, learning to be a better writer, a more interesting writer, and a writer who could tell the stories that are in textiles and cloth and in clothing and their maker, uh, telling those stories in a much more engaging way than I had before. And that's what I'm trying to do now. That is, it is what I'm doing now. It's going through just my own collection and finding pieces that suddenly I think, oh gosh, there's a story there. And then you just jump into the rabbit hole, around the rabbit hole. And it's, oh, look at this. There's so much here and history and all that. Can you take us down one of those rabbit holes and give us a little teaser about some of the stories? Sure. Let's see, what would be good? What do I have for what I'm working on right now? Let me get it. It's awesome. Colorful. I came across this. I'm, I'm going through all my uh, knits, but this is woven. And it was woven by, I bought it at a estate sale in Colorado up in the canyon. And the label says, made by Alice or Helen Dickerson of Buckhorn Canyon. And it was made using, I don't know, I used to be called Flea Market Junkie. I collected, I collected a lot of stuff. This is a little uh, pin loom, a little weave it loom. And that's what this was made with. And so that's going to, and I just got, I just today, I got the book. 
that her <laughs> journal was in Denver, right? That's a biography of these two women who were legendary in Colorado. And writing it, so I'm just getting started on finding museums back there, have photos, and it's just all right there for me. But I just sent this off to Linda Ligon and to the piecework editor, Patolsky, and said, can you use this? Would you like this? And you're like, yeah, we'd like that. So that's one of them. And let me see if I can find my tiny mittens here. That's another the other one I'm working on. And it's right here. So another thing I've found, I'm doing my knitting collection first because my intention is to donate that should it have a near museum at Colorado State University, which I'm really impressed. So I came across these little tiny mittens in my collection. The first two, a lot of the writing that I do is about travel. It's about where I found things, where I traveled all the way from you know, Zambia to Peru to Amanah, Iowa, <laughs> just off eat places. This was in Riga, Latvia, and I found these little things. See how tiny they are? These are hand-netted. The pins or oh, something, they're perfect. Some of the color is knitted in, some of it is. Aren't, isn't that amazing? Oh, I found two of these. That was back in 1999. When I was traveling over there, almost didn't get them out because the, the police officer, we were just driving around. We'd, I was there with my husband at the time, his daughter. We didn't know the language. We didn't know what we just had. We had international driver's licenses, and they, the officer stopped us, and we just kept showing the license and shrugged. They just let us go. Um, but also, I have more of these. I have these two little ones, which are from Norway. These I bought in Norway at a little store called Hustleden. About an inch, inch long. long. Yeah. And then these are special. These were given to me by a woman from Denmark. And I wrote the story of the women, a story about the women who made these and developed a friendship with her daughter. And she gave these to me because her mother had made them a little bit of a story to so what I did, I went through this thing where I learned Norwegian and I studied and I traveled to Norway and one of my travels started going to Norway and about three trips to Norway and, and um, this, I have some Nordic heritage and uh, this is all pre-pandemic. But anyway, so I developed all these connections with people with Norwegian. I think it's Lauren Gilbertson at the Norwegian American, Westerheim Norwegian American Museum. Is letting me has sent me photos of her little mittens that she found. My friend Anamor Sundar, who is a fabulous scholar of Norwegian, many books. Oh, she'd be good for you to interview. She has written many books about knitting, specifically in Sevastal, Norway. And she's written the tome on this. So I got in touch with her. And she sent me photos of nine of these that she has, and from a Norwegian citizen and scholar, the story of what these are about. And it turns out that when a woman started knitting a pair of these, it was a little signal to her husband or her boyfriend that we need to make something small. In other words, it's time to have a baby. <laughs> Who knew? And then it just went on to become a tourist thing, a cottage industry. So those are two things I'm working on right now. I think like there's more here, but I'm 
can't cancel the ones I can put my hands on. Yeah, the knitting, I've just finished going through quite a lot of those. <laughs> anyway, having a lot of fun with that, just coming up with things and thinking, yeah, there's that. And of course, the pot holders, I've got a lot of my own pick up. Oh, yeah, talk to us about the pot holders. I know that's a Oh, that is so much fun. I started collecting them because they were small and they were easy to, they were inexpensive, they were easy to collect. In between Loveland, where I worked, and Fort Collins, where I lived, there were like five huge flea market places along the road, and my car would just automatically turn off and I'd wander around. It was like a little mental, little mini mental vacation. But you'd be surprised how many things I found there that ended up being story. It's, it's very touching. These anonymous, these things that end up being anonymous. If you remember that old book, Anonymous Was a Woman, these are mostly the, hand, the work of the hands of women who did not think they were important enough to put their names on or to claim them. And potholders to me were like that. And I started realizing that I could tell the history, the everyday history of American women with the potholders they were knitting. And so my fantasy is that I, I started on this, it hasn't gotten done yet, but to do a book called Hot Pot, I Feel You Not, which is something that's on one of the older embroidered potholders. And then it's a history of American women in, I don't know, 50, 100 potholders, something like that. But they take you back to the very beginning when they were first making them, beginning turn of the century. They were embroidering them, and then they were trying to make their plain little kitchens a little nicer into the 20s and 30s. And it just goes on from there to the crocheted ones and the yarn manufacturers coming in. There's a whole era of uh, Jim Crow era potholders, and I'm sure you've seen these that people yeah. thought were cute at the time and of course now when you look at them as that's uh, shocking absolutely shocking and uh, that's I will, those i will donate to a special museum at the jim crow era i think it's in museum michigan once i get finished with that but then it goes on to all the clever little crocheted potholders at which time i realized there were two genders male female that was it pants skirts that's it there was People didn't have the words, and they didn't have, didn't have the vocabulary. They didn't have the words to talk about what people were really like, the true range of all the gender possibilities in life. They didn't have that. And there were, I don't know, they, women made a lot of things for bazaars, fundraising. Women raised money for schools and churches, tons of stuff. And they had fun with it. They gave them as gifts back in the 30s when there was no money. They'd make potholders and give them as gifts. And sometimes they made potholders. I found another subcategory of the gendered potholders, which were erotic potholders. They were, yeah, you lift up the little apron and the little flap and you got little suggestive bits under there, which I think must have livened up quite a few bridal shoppers like no, who knew? Who knew? Potholders could be so interesting. And so I've got like 700 of these things. And honestly, I can tell the history of kind of American women in their kitchen through these things. And it all goes to pieces in the 70s and they used real big things and owls and they lose interest. So women go off and do a lot of other things, have proper careers, and they're not so 
dependent on this, but we see that still coming back to be very important in just making things is still very important, but certainly used to have a much larger social role than it does now. Yeah, I have this fantasy of doing the book. Took a year and a half ago, Mary Swander, the professor I talked about, we were in during one class, I mentioned potholders, and she said, potholders? And it turned out kind of relates to food, which is her thing, healthy food. And they had done an exhibit pre-pandemic of aprons. And she said, potholders, oh, we've got to do something with this. And she said, so how many do you have? Do you have enough that we could do an online exhibit? And I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so she developed a, a potholder competition. And we got people sent in their favorite potholders when they had poems and all kinds of things. And then I had to be the judge, unfortunately, but I did a couple of online exhibits, one about the history of potholders and the other about the potholder competition that we had. And that was just so much fun. Everybody had a good time with that. So uh, I don't know, I guess I just like looking at the things that everybody else doesn't think are important. And then I try to find well, there, and especially the things that we've, we've done that with quilt making. We've really reestablished how important a lot of that is. Not sure that's really happened with knitting, but I keep trying <laughs> to show why it's well, important. But anyway, yeah, I can, I should send you the links to that. They're still up on Angart. Yes. Angart. yes and, yeah. And also, she started, Mary also started a, an online literary journal called the blazing star literary journal and that was to showcase the writing of the students in this memoir writing class so i just sent off today my third the third piece that i was asked to send and that one is about finding showing the sheep here's shown in jane austen country and I just, I sent that one off, I, and I illustrate these myself. So I just sent off the illustrations and the text for this, describing going to scholarly knitting conferences, and that is a thing called In the Loop. And it was in Winchester, England. It's also been in the Shetland Islands. And I went off, I was in Jane Austen country. So after the conference where I presented a paper about Norwegian knitting, actually, American knitting in the Norwegian tradition. And yeah, so I had a, a fine day out in Jane Austen country, got stranded by the local bus and I all kinds of fun. there on the a national open day, heritage open day. So all the wonderful old buildings were open. The church was open and in the church, there were these church ladies who'd made things like Sean. They said his name was Sean, like Sean Rasheed from the Nick Park movies, Claymation movies. So Sean came home with me, and Sean keeps me company here in my studio. So I just sent off, you know, it's about 2,000 words describing that day and how I realized after I got Sean and they told me I met these women who were knitting and so on. And I just realized that knitting, to so much, to such an extent, it was knitting was how I coped with loneliness and isolation, being in a tiny little town being a careers, college majors that I was absolutely not suited for. 
And I just realized that it wasn't just the, the knitting scholars and the heritage knitters there in England. These were like-minded people. But it was also the people knitting for the church. And I thought, knitting, it's like this invisible web. And if you, anywhere you go, even the airport, you take out your knitting, you're going to have a friend in 20 minutes, probably. Or any place that I've lived, I just go and find the right knitting group. And there you have your friends. And so knitting, so that's the whole right. I chose that story because I thought probably with all the drama and stress of what's the news and what's going on in the world today, there probably would be people who would welcome a little light story about finding Sean Machine in Austin country and just I could just take them along with me on that day and enjoy it and maybe convert a few people to knitting and realize how that can enrich your life. And you mentioned that knitting can enrich life and can help with balance. What are your thoughts about that with some of the psychological and physical aspects that it's been proven that knitting provides? one's well-being. I've read quite a few pieces, like jury pieces on that, and heard some presentations. There were two occupational therapists in England who did a lot of work with that, with how knitting could help restore some of the kind of purpose in life and the fine motor coordination and so on. There was one recently that someone, sorry, I can't come off the top of my head, the authors or anything, sorry. But most recently, someone, people forward these things to me all the time anyway, forwarded to me about stress and knitting and how this person was a stress knitter. And she could always tell by what she was knitting how stressed she And she had all these projects that she'd started and she'd work on until... Ah, then things weren't quite so bad, and then she'd put it away. And then she, so she had all these unfinished objects, UFOs, as we say, there. And so she was going back and looking at them and recreating her life. And most of us can look at what we were knitting at any particular time in our lives, and we can reconstruct our lives from that, which is what I've been doing in the memoir, with the memoir writing, a lot. There's also... A lot of information about how knitting can bring people together and why it's important in that way. But now I read it, most recently, I read an article. It was by Jessica Hemmings. I do remember her name because she's such a wonderful scholar. And she wrote about how you don't want to overlook the importance of knitting to introverts and how... Yeah, and I thought I'd really relate to that. The people who need, like me, who need time alone to be able to cope with the world, to recharge, gives us something to do that feels productive. And I thought that was quite interesting. So I think that kind of the stress reduction, the social connection, and the physical. I know when I had became seriously ill with mono, as an adult, which is a very serious thing as an adult, and knitting really helped bring me back from that. Yeah, there's quite a literature now. I'm really encouraged by how many 
master's theses and PhD dissertations are now on the topic of knitting and knitting history and so on. There's also, oh, the other thing I've overlooked was knitting is also help thing, like the little finger puppets in Peru, which were originally, as I understand it, a, a Peace Corps project designed. So there are a number of things, ways that, that uh, knitting, oh, that's really old history of being able to knit and uh, earn some money. I've done it myself when I was poor in the well, it's just very innovative way to, uh, yeah, to, excuse the pun, but knit it into your life to help yeah. with health or financial or just well-being. So true. Yeah, it's so true. When I was teaching, I had a student who never, who was facing more than any 21-year-old should ever have to face. Her father had died a year earlier. She was from a large family, had four siblings, and her mother was in hospice care. And she and her sisters were taking turns looking in on her when the hospice nurse couldn't be there. And meanwhile, she's taking a full load in college, including two of my classes. And so she would come to me, and I remember her coming to me the week before finals week and telling me what was going on and said, okay, so I have to be, I may be a little late to that final in dress and culture because I have to, it depends on what time the hospice nurse gets there to stay with mom, but I, that's my time before that. So if I'm a little bit late, I'm thinking, oh, please, no. I never gave incompletes because you could spend the next two years trying to chase down somebody to but I said, no, you're not doing this. And then she was also taking the surface design of fabric class. And she said, no, I just won't sleep for a week. I'll finish. That's what I said. So dedicated. And I just said, no, you're getting incomplete in both of those. And she ended up doing some wonderful work, actually, with Haitian voodoo textiles. She was going to France with her French class. She learned to do this Haitian voodoo beading. And they ended up making... Talk about innovative. She and her friends in the class, she taught this technique to the French class. These are a very small class, and you have to realize probably 10 students who were going to Haiti. And so she taught them how to do this, and they made business card holders and necklaces. They raised almost $500 to take and give to Haiti, give to this group in Haiti. And then while she was doing it, I just thought such a helpless feeling. When you know somebody going through someone like that, especially someone so young. And I thought, oh, is there anything I can do for Iris? And my service design classes, they wanted to learn to knit. And so I'd bring in all my knitting group, come in and we'd do one-to-one teach to knit. And so students started showing up saying, I heard you could learn to knit here. You can go to a yarn shop. No, they wanted to get their friends. So she had learned the basics. I knew how to cast on and stuff, but I went home and I got a copy of my book and I got some knitting needles and the, I don't know, basic Cascade 220 yarn and put it in a tote bag and gave it to her and said, here, get this to your mom. Cause she was talking about how the hours hung heavily on them because they were just sitting with her for so long that your mother was completely bedridden by that. I said, give this to your mom. And I put in some needles and more. And you can knit. 
that's the perfect thing to do. We've all done that. And then like you're waiting for a plane or you're in a hospital room or whatever, netting will focus your concentration. And she took it and she gave it to her mom and she came back the next week and she said, I gave it to my mom and my mom said, why did your professor give this to me? And the student, who was a very practical person, said, because you're dying, mom. And she thought it would give you something to do. And give us something to do while we're sitting with you our time. And it was just this bond with the student over the knitting. It was something I could do. There was nothing else I could do, but it was something I could do. And that whole thing of knitting through any kind of tragedy or whatever, that's not to be overlooked either. Man, that, and you get a lot, I think there, I, the emphasis is on the repetitive motion, like you, with your throw or you pick the repetitive motion and that's supposed to be soothing. But I don't think that's it. I think it's that, I think it's that thinking about it is just engaging enough that engages your mind. You have to pay attention to what you're doing and it just mutes whatever awful stuff you're coping with. It just mutes it so that you can cope. And I think that's because knitting can become very intellectual doing three-dimensional design and oh my gosh, the yarn and the fire and the patterns and the books and books of patterns and texture. Oh, the texture and everything. But if you just want to knit just for something to do and then go on to something, but I think it's more the mental engagement than it is the, the sort of new yoga, moving, repetitive motion. I really think it's the intellectual engagement that is so soothing, comforting. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good theory. Somebody ought to research oh, yeah. that and write it out. <laughs> Please study. Uh, thank you. Our viewers will thank you for research. Time. I hope so. I'm not going. I'm not going to do it. It's there for the taking. I'll tell you. <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, you you talked about um, with me in some previous conversations how you believe you have a thread of innovation running through your career. Could you elaborate on that? bit more and then how has this thread of innovation manifested itself throughout your various roles and careers and projects well as i was i was writing the the, the memoir I started out writing just how i learned which was from a grandmother and i was knitting a little bit making all the mistakes and then a friend of my mother's saw i was knitting and picked it up and knitted perfect rows above it and i looked at it and thought Obviously, I'm not any good at this, and I put it away, and it was prophetic. I would so often decide I just wasn't good at, at something because I didn't do it perfectly right away. And so then picking up the first thread of the psychological thread there that I'd have to deal with all my life. But then when I was about 12 or 13, I took up knitting very seriously. Mainly, it was that it let me hang out with adults. I didn't know any teenagers knitting, but I was deathly bored with my education and with this little town of a thousand people where I just had nothing in common with anyone. And I was, I felt so isolated and so lonely and I was ill a lot. And I just turned to knitting. And so I picked up knitting. And interestingly, 
by connecting with adult knitters who knew a lot about yarn, I learned about, that was my first exposure to culture, really to world culture, knitting with the early Nordic yarns, Scandia and so on, with the French mohair, and starting to think there's a world out there. So Brent carried me to realizing there was a world out there. Plus, it was intellectually challenging in ways that my classes weren't always. So that was good. And I got to hang out with adults. <laughs> and yeah, so I took that. And from then on, I just always had knitting with me anywhere I went. I was never without it. And I um, knit all the way through college and certainly and through the second wave feminism when everything we did that was quilting, knitting, everything, and it was just a waste of time. But I still kept knitting. And because I just, yarn stores were closing right and left. There really weren't the knitting groups then or anything. But I just kept knitting. I just kept doing it. And then when I went to Interweave Press, oh my gosh, you go to a meeting, everybody's knitting, they got drop spindles. And there, it was respected. There was respect for handmade textiles. And of course, there was growing respect nationally, which I think Interweave Press actually, I think, spurred a lot of that with their publication. So then I just started knitting designs whenever I could for publication as well as recreating things. And then the knitting, my first story was that I published about knitting history was based on knitting, the knitting school and the Amana colonies in Iowa. The Amana colonies, we stopped there for lunch on my way back from Iowa City when I was about 15 or 16, and I'd been there. I'd gotten a week at the University of Iowa in the journalism students who were going to be the editors of their high school newspapers, which I was, which, trust me, was not a big deal. And I went in onto a rather spectacularly mediocre career doing it. But I loved the writing. And I kind of, anyway, we stopped for lunch. We didn't, I guess we didn't have time to go actually look at the Amana colonies. We just stopped along the interstate. But I suppose I read it on the back of the menu or, the wall or something that this was a really interesting cultural community a communal society and what that was about how the people dressed and all that and so it was just i went back 20 years later when i was working at interweave and i found out about their knitting school and ended up writing it was my first article and that was when i discovered that was what i wanted to do write these stories i just needed to be better at writing and better at research. So again, again, it's Nelly getting back in there. And then, of course, realizing I wanted to go to graduate school, and I had put up an exhibit at CSU for Interweave Press. It was going to be an exhibit of hand-spun textile. And I'd been given permission to use one of the galleries and our friend Jack Kerfman designed that exhibit for us, and it was beautiful. And I was, it was all done. He designed it. I installed it. I built things for to support stuff in there. And I'm just walking out of the building, and I see this sign that says, Knitwits, Knitting, Wednesdays. Oh, yeah, let's go see what that's about. So I showed up, my tote bag, my knitting, and stuff on it. And meanwhile, my life was falling apart. My life was absolutely falling apart. I was still sick from mono. My life was falling apart personally. It was just, I wanted to go to graduate school and I didn't know how and all that. So anyway, I just showed up and everybody was so welcoming. 
and just started talking to me about how this all worked and what I could do and where I would go to school. And then you all took me with you to ITAA, International Textile Apparel Association, for a meeting where I shopped for a graduate program. And I chose the right one. And so again, it's right there. And I was talking about how hard, and, and so for graduate school, I just started knitting. I was still knitting socks mostly, I think. And then, because it was a kind of a template, and then I could do anything with the template of the sock. And then after I started teaching, and I mentioned it's really demanding, especially in the first couple of years. And so I just went home and I knit socks every night. And the knitted socks, that just held my life together. And then it was okay. And my grandmother had told me that when she taught me to knit. It's the very first thing she said was that I'm struggling with to make the first stitches. And she said sometimes when she couldn't, when she, things just didn't seem right in life, things hadn't gone right that day, she would knit for a while. And then it would just seem to put things in order. And then she would go to bed and she knew she could sleep. And it's funny the way I was only about eight or nine years old, probably about eight years old. And about to remember that so clearly for saying that. And it, like, it, again, it was prophetic or something that she. So once again, I guess I used that thread of connection with knitting in an innovative way to hold my life together or to become a writer. <laughs> and then, of course, when I went to, when I began teaching, then I was teaching students to knit. And we had a small social group um, of knitters who would get me off campus once in a while and into the city doing something or other. And one of my students started, officially started a knitting group on campus and she got funding from the university and she won the award that group won the award for the best community building yeah featured there and i was their academic advisor at the time and so i got credit for that but i didn't really it was really the student but it was open to faculty and to staff and to students so it brought everyone together in a way that it was very hard to do otherwise, because faculty and staff, there's always a certain dissension there. And with students, they're usually a little intimidated or not feeling too comfortable. Yeah, so knitting, again, was a gift to the students that then let them, in a very innovative way, create this program. Me uh, uh, kept them, gave them a lot of experience with uh, running a group. We got money for food and things like that and had to arrange a space to meet. And yeah, so it ended up being, and then I would just go home and knit socks at night because I would, and I haven't even mentioned that the book, which just fell into my lap. And again, just a weird series and connections there. You do several podcasts. That you, well, you're, you have so many fascinating projects, but I, the last question that I asked sure. each guest is, how do you define uh, innovation? Boy. I think innovation is going somewhere that somebody just hasn't thought to go before. Right. It's just seeing something that nobody else has seen there before. It's taking notice of a situation or an object or a place. And nobody has thought 
to seriously say, now, what's that about? I wonder what that's about. Let's go see. It's like taking out a big map and saying, I wonder what that town is like and just going over there. But that, that eventually, fun to come up with those ideas, but then you also have to produce and you have to do the research and the work and the always scrabbling for information and then all of that. So eventually it becomes a lot of work. So innovation can be, it's really fun, but it, for me, it ends up being quite a lot of work too, to make it happen. Oh, that's a great definition. That is, I like that you've also folded in that you do produce something. You have to do the work yeah. too. So you can innovate, but you need to I taught a class, just a seminar, college to career class, and I discovered that most of the pre preparation students were getting was like how to have a firm handshake, how to stand up and get just things like how do you get a job and that. And I kept emphasizing, eventually you got to produce. Nobody had ever told them that before. <laughs> are going to have to work. This isn't just about do you have to do? And I think that's, I guess I see a parallel there with innovation that, yeah, it's fun for me to come up with, I don't know, some story but about something, but making it happen and then writing is really is, is a lot of work too to do that well. It is. That's it. Yep. Susan, thank you for joining us today. This was delightful and we're definitely going to have you back on on podcast series. Your diverse career journey is inspiring and demonstrates the importance of taking risks, but then also producing, as you said. That is so important. You can innovate all you want to, but if you don't do something with the innovation. Well, thank you for having me here. For our listeners, I hope this conversation has sparked new ideas and perspectives perhaps even ignited a flame of curiosity to explore innovate within your own spheres of influence. Remember, innovation is not just about technology or groundbreaking discoveries. It's about how we think, connect, and bring our unique talents and insights to create positive change. I am Dr. Yolanda Sanders, and I'm signing off until our next episode. Keep innovating dreaming and keep making a difference.